welcome to the Cherry Becker Risk and Accounting Advisory Podcast. I'm Neil Began, leader of the firm's risk advisory practice. And with me today, my esteemed colleagues, I've got Steve Ursillo, firm leader of our information assurance and cybersecurity practice, as well as Gareth Montague-Smith, the managing director, and Peyton Black, a director that helped lead our risk advisory SEC practice. For today's podcast, we're going to be diving into the latest on the proposed rules to enhance and standardize disclosures regarding cybersecurity risk management, strategy, governance, and cybersecurity incident reporting by public companies. These are for those that are subject to the reporting requirements of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. First and foremost, we're going to start with Mr. Steve Ursillo, who is a little bit under the weather, but we recognize that this uh, issue was pressing and certainly timely, so we thank Steve for joining us today, even not at 100%. So we will try and keep this brief with Steve and his waning voice, which normally is booming. So Steve, if you could please, let's talk about what does the changing threat landscape, excuse me, how does the, the changing threat landscape impact this recent proposed rule change? Well, thank you for the intro, Neil, and thanks for taking the pressure off me in case my voice cracks. So uh, appreciate that. Welcome everybody. Um, it's really no secret, cyber attacks are continuing to rise. This trend coupled with you know, COVID and international conflict is adding additional levels of economic uncertainty for many business owners and investors. Uh, it seems like everywhere you turn, you know, you're hearing about ransomware attacks, business email compromise, corporate account takeovers, and of course, distributed denial of service attacks on organizations, just to name a few. So unfortunately, these adversaries are continuing to find new and innovative ways to monetize data, commit financial fraud, disrupt an organization's service level commitments and or their business commitments. Um, no one's really immune to this. You know, these types of attacks are obviously out there. They're, they're predominant and organizations are trying to navigate it you know, left and right as they go through and, and uh, evaluate their own cyber maturity programs. So even the most uh, mature organizations, including our own country's financial and economic infrastructure, you know, we need to pay attention to these types of things. That said, overall, what has transpired is there's a fair amount of communication efforts made to the SEC related to material breaches uh, have not been consistently reported when compared to certain other outlets like the media, regulatory filings, maybe an organization's annual report. In fact, in certain cases, these incidents aren't even being reported to the SEC at all. So in an effort to kind of continue to evolve with the trends and raise a higher level of transparency to investors and financial stakeholders, the SEC introduced this proposal, I think it was in March of this year, um, really to try to hedge and get ahead of that. The rule would require registrants to provide more standardization in the reporting and disclosure of material cyber incidents. In addition, this rule would also help identify and prioritize communication efforts related to cybersecurity makeup and practices for investors. That's great, Steve. I appreciate that, that background. And I'm gonna move to Peyton kind of for this second question. Uh, you know, obviously Steve touched on the threat landscape, obviously important in that it is, you know, when you think about cyber cyber risk, it, it is industry agnostic and as many companies that have to um, comply with the Security Exchange Act of 1934 span a number of different industries. I wanted, uh, Peyton, for you to just kind of unpack in a minute or two background and history of the proposed rule change uh, as it re relates to SOX compliance. Yep, sure thing. Thanks, Neil and, and Steve. Thanks for the uh, the background on, you know, the increased threat assessments that um, you know are, are much more relevant um, today. So back in 2011, you know, over 10 years ago, the SEC issued interpretive guidance on their views 
on how its exist existing rules should be interpreted in connection with cybersecurity threats and incidents. Um, then in 2018, they, they issued additional guidance um, to reinforce and expand on some of that um, 2011 guidance. Um, and, you know, essentially in a nutshell, um, you know, that interpretive guidance discussed the impact on cybersecurity risks and incidents on disclosure requirements. So if a company determined that it was necessary to disclose those risks, um, you know, in various places throughout their 10K, such as in the risk factors, the MDNA section, you know, maybe legal pr proceedings, and even the financial statements. Um, you know, um, but as as the SEC has has identified and we've seen, those disclosures have been very inconsistent and and all over the place. And so, you know, the the SEC has determined. Um, you know, that there's really a need for consistent and comparable and decision useful disclosures that are going to allow investors to to evaluate a company's exposure to cyber risks and incidents and also their ability to manage and mitigate those risks and incidents. Um, and so this proposed rule, you know, from a SOX perspective, as well as just, um, you know, a, a disclosure perspective, um, you know, to expand on what what Steve mentioned, um, it's there's new requirements that are going to be out there um, that companies are going to have to build into their system of internal control, um, you know, particularly around uh, material cybersecurity incidences. Um, there's new disclosures um, about updates to prior um, cybersecurity incidents. Um, and then, you know, I think, you know, almost mo most importantly in this is there's going to be new disclosures on cybersecurity monitoring and risk management policies and procedures, management's roles, uh, cybersecurity governance, you know, and among uh, a, a number of, of new requirements that we'll expand on here in, uh, shortly. Great. Thanks, Peyton. Appreciate that. I want to come back to Steve with some of the things that you said. So let's talk about uh, what this proposed amendment actually means in terms of cyberspace. Steve? Sure. Thanks, Neil. And uh, great information that's been transpiring so far. So um, ultimately, as we just, um, you know, as we had discussed earlier, this is kind of built upon uh, already existing guidance, um, you know, the staff guidance and the, inter and the interpretive release. Um, but what the amendment means is that an organization is going to be forced to, to really institute expected best practice policies and procedures related to cyber governance, risk management, and their incident response program. Um, collectively, you know, organizations have been navigating this and trying to come up with ways in, in order to best orchestrate and communicate the overall maturity of their programs and, and you know, providing the right um, footprint for communicating that to key stakeholders, board of directors, and the like. And this is kind of just emphasizing that. It's just emphasizing the fact that there's required disclosures there to bring this forth in addition to some other uh, material events that need to be reported. So specifically, you know, when you think about what's required in the incident response program, we're talking about, you know, potentially a four business day notification deadline for reporting material cybersecurity incidents. We're talking about mandatory disclosures regarding the board of directors oversight and cybersecurity risk and the individual board member cybersecurity expertise and then mandatory disclosures regarding the role of management in addressing cyber risk. So um, that information that's expected to be included, not, not only from the standpoint of having the maturity to report it back to key stakeholders, but as we noted earlier, it's going to be expected to be reported, especially from a materiality perspective on the 10K and the 10Q filings, and where relevant on the Form 8K. 
So any unscheduled material event or corporate change is going to be expected to be uh, handled accordingly. Even if you had an event that you didn't deem to be material that became material is going to be expected to be recorded appropriately there. So, for example, if, if an incident had been determined to be material, the proposed rule is, is really going to require necessary and timely reporting of that incident on the organization within four business days of it being uh, deemed as material. Now, I want to reemphasize because I do get this question quite often. When you talk about a particular incident, if there's a particular incident that's been discovered, there's obviously an incident response protocol that's going to be activated. Teams are going to investigate. They're going to try to determine the root cause, the the actual uh, what was orchestrated, what systems were a part of potentially that attack, what data might have been compromised, what's the impact of that data, how far did it go, so on and so forth. Um, that's going to take time, and those typical um, you know discovery processes can take a, a bit of effort collectively across the incident response team, including legal, compliance, the forensic teams, the technical teams. So ultimately, once that information gets back and the organization, here's the key, has determined it to be material to their reporting, that's when the clock is set. That's when we need to respond within four business days of that incident being deter uh, deemed to be material to their financial reporting. Now we have to get that disclosed. So the 8K is actually expecting to have certain information on there, like when was the incident discovered? Is, is it ongoing? A brief description of the nature and the scope of the incident, whether the data was stolen, altered, accessed, or used for any other unauthorized purpose, the effect of the incident on the company's operations or maybe their service level commitments, and whether the company has remediated or is currently in the remediation process related to that incident. So inherently, I mean, if you think about it, by prescribing these specific reporting criteria, Organizations need to make sure they have all of the right people, process, and technology in place to capture it and be able to um, timely disclose all of the relevant criteria uh, in order to report it you know, formally to the SEC or to other communication outlets. So inherently, by driving it from that reporting perspective, it's really making organizations really think about, hey, are we doing the right thing? Are we mature enough that we're collecting? Are we actively looking for these types of incidents? And are we determining you know, the, the, the nature and the impact of this from a materiality standpoint? If they don't have these, min these minimum incident response program capabilities to reacting to this, they're going to have a real hard time you know, not only getting the right information populated, but especially within that four-day window. You know, another example, you know, as we stated earlier, when you talk about the guidance requiring organizations to, to disclose certain details related to the experience of the board of directors related to security. Well, if an organization doesn't have that experience currently, now they have to reevaluate and adjust the makeup of the expertise accordingly in order to you know, properly show what their, their board expertise may look like reporting that back. So inherently, once again, you know, by by forcing this reporting, it's it's forcing an action upon the organization to uh, address the overall maturity of their cyber program related to some of these best practice requirements. That's great, Steve. What, what I didn't give in your quick background that I'm sure people picked up on there is not only is Steve a nationally renowned cybersecurity expert, you can tell by some of that explanation there, he actually originally cut his teeth and, and is still an active CPA. So it's great to Kind of have both angles covered there and, and thank you for that detail that was fantastic i do want to go to gareth uh not only because gareth has the coolest accent of any of us on this podcast but he uh has a lot of insight with his background both sitting on um, an external audit perspective but more re more recently in the last 10 years or so really helping from an internal uh perspective uh, getting companies uh, compliant with socks and so forth so gareth how do the proposed regulations impact both management and the board okay Thanks, Neil. Um, 
Essentially, the proposal for, at the board level would dis require disclosure of oversight of the risks. Um, we talk about whether the board considers cyber risk as part of its overall business strategy, its risk management and financial oversight. It would also require disclosure of who was responsible for oversight of the risks. And then finally, it would talk about how the board is informed about and how often do they discuss cybersecurity risks. And then finally, the proposed regulations would also require disclosure, as Steve alluded to, in annual reports and certain proxy filings of any board member who has expertise in the cybersecurity space, including their names and their relevant experiences as it pertains to being an expert. As it, as it relates to management, the proposed regulations would require a description of the role that management plays around security, cybersecurity risks. Specifically, and similar to the onus or direction of the board of requirements, the requirement would also require a description of whether certain management positions or committees are responsible for measuring and managing risks. And then again, it goes on to require a description of the relevant expertise of those positions. In addition, the description would also need to address whether the registrant has de designated a CISA or Chief Information Security Officer or someone in a similar position. It would have to describe who that person or individual reports to, and then also the relevant expertise of that individual. The description would also need to address the process by which persons or committees are informed about and monitor, mitigate and detect cybersecurity incidents. And then finally, some language around the frequency of reporting to the board or the board committee on cyber risk. So overall, some fairly new um, but prescriptive requirements impacting both people and process. That's great, Gareth. Appreciate that. Um, wanted to come back to, to Steve um, and just talk about, you know, when companies are looking at this proposed rule change uh, expected to go final here in, in not too long a time, what should they be doing and how can companies get ready or, or, or be ready in regards to compliance um, by way of uh, cyber assessments? Yeah, great question, Neil. Um, I mean, ultimately, the, the SEC reporting requirements are in proposal, right? But these expectations are going to be best on, I mean, these uh, uh, all, all of what's required in here are really based on best practices. And it's really almost expected, you know, in many organizations to begin with. I think it's just putting a little bit more of an emphasis on the formality of that, um, you know, to, to in, ensure organizations are communicating consistently and timely um, along the lines of other outlets that they may have to do for regulatory or legal disclosures and things along those lines. Um, but as far as how some of these details flush out as as the you know the proposal gets to a final rule you know we'll we'll wait to determine to see you know what where we have to navigate there but ultimately the organization should not be waiting on this because quite frankly regardless of where it pivots like i said these are best practices for cyber risk management and i think that you know many organizations need to get out ahead of this sooner than later so don't waste any time certainly get out there Take a look at your cyber program. Take a look at your your cyber risk management strategies. Try to align those, you know, appropriately. And I can kind of unpack that here in a second. But that's going to get you out ahead of not only this particular ruling, but anything that's going to continue to come down the pipe. Uh, cybersecurity threats are certainly predicated on a hard trend. Um, they're not going anywhere. They're going to continue to evolve. They're going to continue to advance. And there's more and more scrutiny, regulatory expectation around the safeguarding of data and what that means for protection of organizations and, and the ways in which they operate, and specifically in these cases, investors, right? Um, so typically, if you're going to get out ahead of this, you're going to, you're going to include a, a cyber governance program assessment against one or more cyber frameworks. So, for example, in this cybersecurity framework is agnostic. You could look at that. 
Uh, ISO 27001 is is certainly a prescribed agnostic or uh, prescribed framework that you know has a heavy international focus, but carries over here in the U.S. There's going to be industry specific frameworks that organizations are going to want to factor into this. Many good cyber governance programs are not necessarily built on one, but they're built on the risk and the needs of the organization and how they operate. So, you know, if you're in um, you know, a, a defense contractor, you're, you're going to be looking at NIST 800-171 or the new cybersecurity maturity model. If you're in healthcare, you're going to be looking at the HIPAA security breach notification requirements, privacy requirements, things along those lines. So there's going to be other factors that are brought into the mix here. Um, this would also include a cybersecurity, you know, technical risk assessment, or I should say a risk assessment. Uh, I think tying back to what we were talking about earlier when Peyton had talked about the overall cyber uh, risk management program, you know, cyber is going to be an important part of that. So coming up with the, the, the right risk assessment in order to determine where your true uh, higher residual risks are and develop that into your strategy is going to help you in quickly navigating this as well. And that's going to include a comprehensive evaluation of the incident response program. So let's just, just break that down and tackle that in some of the key action items. Think about the completeness of your cybersecurity program, your governance program. Take a look at that, measure that up, perform your risk assessments, make sure they're formal, uh, they're covering what you need to as far as what's relevant for the cyber program in addition to what will have a material impact on your financial reporting if you had an incident. Um, take a look at the state and the completeness of your policies and procedures based on those programs. Make sure that those policies and procedures are prescribing kind of a repeatable formal uh, um, methodology and how you operate. You're going to want to take a look at your vulnerability management programming, including penetration testing, uh, making sure that you're actively looking for risks and threats in the environment and trying to get out ahead of mitigation there and enforcing that defense in depth. You're going to want to uh, obviously take a look at the, the maturity of your incident response program. This is a big one. Um, many organizations are uh, continuing to try to evolve here, but putting in the right uh, technology, both from uh, threat hunting and you know detection and threat hunting perspective, to be able to see whether or not they've had any incidents on the network, if they're investigating things that are indicative of some type of an attack or something along those lines. But the maturity of that incident response program is certainly something that is organizations need to get out in front of and making sure that all of the elements that they're capturing through those incident investigations is going to transcribe back to the reporting requirements as prescribed by the actual rule. That's really important. Um, third party and supply risk management programs, make sure those are evaluated. I mean, there's no there's no question that, you know, um, supply chain attacks have been out for quite some time. But in the last couple of years, they've really hit the lens of many people because of the fact that there's such high profile attacks and you know, they're difficult to navigate when when some of those responsibilities are lying in the confines of your your vendor or your you know subservice organizations that you're working with or those third parties you're working with. So adequately evaluating your third party risk management program and making sure that you're comprehensive tie, comprehensively tying that back to your cyber risk management program is going to be very important. And then of course, with everything, user awareness training on all fronts, making sure people are staying on top of the latest and greatest threats making sure that threat intelligence is being shared you know, through the organization and within the people in the organization to make sure that uh, protections are there. And then there's going to be other specific cyber risk mitigation, detection, and recovery strategies that are going to align to leadership and key stakeholders' risk appetites as you kind of go through this process. So it's really important to kind of focus on that. But overall, just don't wait for it become uh, don't wait for things to become a final rule. Get out ahead of this. Some of this is going to take a little bit of a, a runway to get matured. And then ultimately, you can backfill based on some of the changes that are made along the way to, to achieve full compliance. 
That's great. Thanks, Stephen. Peyton, I, I want to let you get the last word here. You, you know, just obviously when we're talking about SOX compliance, there's various stages, right? You have companies that are preparing for it. You have companies that uh, are under the 404A and have tripped that requirement. Um, and then companies that maybe are either, um, you know, starting their 404B year, first year with the uh, external attestation and, and audit from the external auditors and or maybe companies that have been 404B for a number of years. So are there any changes? You know, you heard Steve just unpack uh, what companies could be doing, but are there any changes for um, organizations that are in those different phases of SOX, either preparing for it, being in a, a readiness or 404A year versus those that have compi uh, complied for years with as, as a result of being uh, 404B? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, for those companies um, that are, you know, this is their first year being public or their 404A and they're, and they're getting ready, I mean, they're going to have to build these cybersecurity considerations into their readiness process. Um, but I mean, very similarly, um, you know, historically, companies have not had to, you know, from a SOX perspective, had cybersecurity controls because it hasn't been required. Um, it's, it's, you know, nothing that's required to be disclosed in the past. And so regardless if you're, you know, a new company, new, newly public company in the readiness phase, or you've been doing this for years, um, you're both going to need to expand the scope of, of the existing controls to include the, the cyber considerations. You know, I mean, for example, just, you know, as Steve um, discussed um, earlier, um, you know, if your company doesn't have a cyber risk program or cybersecurity policy, you need one now. You need to go ahead and get, uh, you know, get that in place. But, you know, from a controls perspective, also, you've got to determine how you communicate this to your employees or consultants or vendors. Are you going to add this to your code of conduct, DNO questionnaires, vendor forms, um, and a lot of, you know, different um, ways and, and areas where there are already existing controls. So you're really going to have to embed the cyber the cyber pieces into those controls. Um, you know, your your ITGC government's controls. Um, there's going to need to be, you know, a formal IT security policy and procedure, cyber policies. Um, you know, uh, with regard to the risk assessments, um, generally there's um, there are usually any level controls performing, you know, entity-wide risk assessments. Um, that will need to be regardless if you if you're not doing them, you need to do them and you need to have cyber, um, you know, discussions in there. Um, and then there's also just, you know, your existing, um, you know, 10K and 10Q filing controls, checklists, um, you know, and making sure what are your controls over the security law disclosure obligations, not just cyber, but, you know, what have you been doing, um, you know, when you've been been filing, what controls do you have in place? And then essentially just building the cyber piece into that. Um, and so, you know, there's there's a lot that can be done now, um, you know, and I'll, and I'll say kind of in closing here, um, you know, the 10K filing season for for most of my clients just wrapped up and in the audit committee meetings, um, almost all of my SEC filer clients cybersecurity was a specific topic within those audit committee meetings. So it is top of mind with the board, which trickles down to management as well. Um, so, you know, it, it's important to get a, you know, get a jump on this. And, and obviously the, the rule hasn't been final yet, um, it is not final yet, but regardless, you know, it, it's expected in some iteration of, of what we've talked about today. So, you know, just 
want to stress to to get in front of it look at your control environment and see where you need to embed the cybersecurity considerations that's great thanks peyton and, and while i am thinking i also want to thank uh stephen garris for joining me today um as you've heard you know stay tuned for more on this proposed amendments uh, i think comments are still able to be received on or before may 9th uh which is coming up sooner than we know uh we also uh, you know, we should know more from the SEC in probably the next 60 days. And even if the final amendment to the rule varies from what you're seeing now in the proposed rule, uh, obviously, hopefully we made it clear that the SEC is serious about addressing and enforcing cybersecurity risks. Uh, you know, you heard Steve, Peyton, and, and Gareth talk about companies should consider taking steps now in anticipation of the impending uh, regulation to ensure that your company's ready. So again, I want to thank uh, the other panelists on today's podcast. Really appreciate you guys taking the time to join today for more information on this topic or how your company can approach a cybersecurity gap assessment and response program, feel free to visit us at cbh.com. And as always with our podcast series, we ask you that you please like, share, and subscribe. Uh, and uh, that could be to all of the various podcasts that Cherry Beckert's doing, but from a best in interest from myself and the folks on this call, we'd love it if you please like and excuse me, please like, share, and subscribe to the Risk and Accounting Advisory Podcast. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.